time is probably expired I'd leave home for New York, but New York is where I'm from I'm just looking for a way to feel my life has begun Living in the city where I'm working like a walrus But man, I don't need your money, man I'm gonna be an artist And I'm feeling like I wanna do whatever I feel inside I put it all on paper and I'll hope that people buy it And my only minor worry is how to pay the rent But that won't even matter when I lose my apartment And I'll really have no worries I'll be just like a cassette That you've taped up the tabs of to put something new on it And when I hit record, God only knows what I will be if there is no God, then it's a better mystery. Fighting for survival, and I guess I must be winning. And my story is so long, I can't remember the beginning. Am I an optimist or am I a pessimist? If I see that half full, half empty cup is half full of nothingness. You're listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming online at kboo.fm. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Development and Events Committee meets on the fourth Monday of the month at 4.30 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify if a meeting is being held. I'm out to sing songs. It'll prove to you that this is your world and that it has hit you pretty hard and knocked you down. For a dozen loops, no matter how hard it's run you down and rolled over you, no matter what color, what size you are, how you're built, I am out to sing the songs that will make you take pride in yourself. I'm Lori Sonnenfeld. And I'm Don Jacobson. Together we bring you Moving On, Fridays from 12 noon to 1.30. We feature both traditional and contemporary folk music. We love to present live in-studio concerts from local and national musicians. Tune in and you'll hear music that is socially progressive, moving, and heartfelt. Music heard only on the left-hand edge of the dial and only on KBOO. Every Friday, noon 
to 130. We who believe in freedom cannot The roadways are definitely getting more dangerous. Between our own cell phone use and the fact that cars are practically computers. Teslas are known for their ultra-modern interior, which includes no buttons or knobs. All functions are activated and controlled on the touchscreen itself. We're all distracted on the road, and we're not as great as we think at turning our attention back to the road. A driver cannot split second take control of the vehicle again, and then in parallel, split second, look at their phone, and then look back up to the roadway and have 100% attentional ability immediately. There is a lag. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, what screens are doing to our brains. From the sidewalks to the highway, everyone's a little preoccupied on the road. But it's not just your eyes off the road, it's your brain off the road, too. Brian Porter is a professor of psychology at Old Dominion University. He says both pedestrians and drivers have to hold themselves accountable for technology-related car accidents. Brian, we hear a lot about distracted drivers what are distracted pedestrians and how bad is that these days? Well, I tell you, you know, we often don't think about pedestrians in the same distracted kind of mobility discussion that uh, we talk about with drivers, right? We're always so concerned about drivers on their phones or drivers who are paying attention to what they're eating or what their passengers are saying that we don't really think about we as walkers, we think for some reason, hey, it's okay to be out there and, and, and be distracted by walking. What, what on earth could happen to us well, you know, it turns out that, that pedestrians are, are an overrepresented group of those who are killed on our roads annually. And a good bit of those problems have a lot to do with distractions. So, you know, for example, we found that over a third of the pedestrians were distracted as they were actively crossing roadways. So this is not a small problem when you think about one out of three pedestrians may not be fully attending to watching what they're doing when they cross the road. And what do you mean a third are distracted? They're looking down at phones? Well, yes, wearing headphones was the most common distraction that we observed. And we also don't think, you know, wearing headphones, who cares, right? We can still hear the traffic uh, through our headphones. But there is some interesting research saying that that does essentially uh, minimize one's ability to attune to the environment, that that puts the brain in a place. And by the way, when we're talking about distractions, we're talking about where your brain is, okay? What cognitive resources are you using? So if I'm listening to music in my headphones, do I really see the traffic around me? So just like if I'm a driver and I'm on my phone, do I see the pedestrian crossing in front of me? That's a concern. Same with pedestrians. Do I see the car coming at me if I'm wearing my headphones? Where is my brain right now? The second thing that pedestrians were most often doing was text messaging, right? We've all seen that crossing the street, people are text messaging. And, you know, Sarah, you and I could ask ourselves, honestly, have we ever crossed a road looking at our phone texting? Have we ever fallen prey to that? And if we have, we need to be certainly not doing that anymore. And then talking on the phone was actually the third most common behavior we saw. Well, your own campus is in an urban environment. What do you see driving around the grounds 
of Old Dominion University. Well, driving around here, I, I will be honest, we have not done direct assessments of distracted driving on campus, but here's the concern, sir, I wanna bring out. People think, well, that's good, right? So Dr. Porter's team is not seeing handheld mobile phone use out there. That's great, drivers are doing great with Bluetooth. But there's research that's been done in other labs around the United States that's shown that hands-free use does not solve what the brain is doing problem. It doesn't solve the cognitive distraction problem. That is fascinating yes. and counterintuitive. Yes. Hands-free driving is not safer than handheld driving. Not from a cognitive perspective. Again, it's this multiple layers of safety. If you're still having a conversation and that is still taking resources away from you as you drive. Well, you know, I've talked to people, let's say, yeah. who are driving in the D.C. area, mm -hmm. have their ma Google Maps is on, they're oh, navigating yeah. where to go, and then they go, wait a minute, wait, Ugh, I just missed my turn. Yes. So we have multi-layers of sort of digital distraction. Oh, good grief, don't we ever. Think about all the entertainment that's put into our vehicles now and the touchscreens that are put into our vehicles now. And some of those touchscreens are not really within eyesight, right? We have to look down and away to interact with some of these touchscreens. So absolutely, all these navigational devices, and mostly they're on our phones now, even if they're mounted somehow, we're still looking away from the road, we're still engaging with them and get this, now we've introduced the motor component back because I'm using my hand, right, to scroll or to zoom in or to enter coordinates. And this is important also if we ever want to talk about self-driving vehicles, autonomous vehicles. What happens when a driver lets the car take over, does whatever the driver wants to do, and then the car wants the driver to take control again, right? So there's an emergency and the vehicle alerts the driver, you must now take control. A driver cannot split second take control of the vehicle again, and then in parallel, split second, look at their phone, and then look back up to the roadway and have 100% attentional ability immediately. There is a lag. I didn't realize that driverless vehicles do have moments where they say, Oh my God, take the wheel. Yeah, some do, some do. And, and you know, the, the experts talk about levels of automation, right? Most scenarios, there's, there's semi-autonomous vehicles, whether it's the vehicles that you can set to self-driving on highway, or there's different levels of autonomy, okay? So in each one of those cases, there is a system these cars do where they there will be points where the driver has to retake control. And, and psychologists around the world have been concerned with Okay, how quickly can the driver truly retake control of that vehicle? Not quickly enough, Not generally. Not quickly, it just takes seconds to take control. No, 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 let me give you and the listeners a scenario. We'll look at our phone, we'll talk to our passenger, we might be reading the book, if we, you know, which we shouldn't be doing in most of those scenarios, but we do. And now we get the alert to take control. And now I have to figure out what is that alert, okay? What does that alert mean? Okay, where is the risk coming from? Okay, what should I do? Each one of those steps I just mentioned to you takes time. And by that point, depending on how fast you're going, it may be too late. It may be too late for you to mitigate a crash. You know, just before the pandemic hit, pedestrian deaths reached a three-decade high. And a lot of cities launched campaigns urging walkers to put down their phones. But studies are saying most of the blame is actually due to the driver's texting, even though, yeah, there's plenty of blame for, 
earbud wearing and iPhone gazing pedestrians that most of the blame really is with the drivers being distracted. Is that true? I tend to try not to put blame on anybody. So there are times, for example, where pedestrians can be at fault, just as there's times, obviously, drivers can be at fault. So it's not very helpful to think about it, who's at fault, and let's, let's focus on that. I look at it as a system. Why are drivers motivated in a way to drive in certain ways? Why are pedestrians motivated to walk in certain ways? There are essentially things that shape those behaviors, okay? So what about the system is not working to stop the pedestrian from taking that risk or to encourage the driver, motivate the driver to put the phone down. That's that's where I focus on. So how big a problem is this? As we're opening up after the pandemic, are we starting to see more collisions for pedestrians? Sarah, here's the thing about COVID that makes COVID truly so far in my lifetime a once in a lifetime event. If you look at the fatality crash rate overall for the United States in 2019, pre-COVID, in 2020, during COVID, and we're waiting to hear the final numbers for 2021. But from 2019 to 2020, fatality rate in the United States year to year increased 24%. Oh. That rate has not been observed in the history of monitoring fatality rates in the United States. And that history began in 1966. What does that suggest to you? What are you thinking? Well, that COVID was a once in a hundred year, once in a lifetime event that has just wreaked havoc on public health at large. The number of deaths, the raw count of fatalities did go down during COVID, but the rate continued to go up. That's because there were fewer people on the road. So driving actually plummeted. We know that speeding crashes went up. So people were speeding more during COVID. So the question is, why are we doing it? <laughs> why are we speedy? Why do we take that opportunity to use the open road accordingly? That research is still coming out. So, so we've had all these general assemblies and local governing bodies who've made the decision to, let's really solve our pedestrian accident problem and make sure that drivers who inevitably will use their phones in the cars are doing it hands-free. Yeah. And everybody's going hands-free and thinking, hey, this is better. What you're saying is it hasn't been better what should we be doing? Well, hands-free, I would argue hands-free as a stepping stone is better than no law at all. Let's be clear. Oh. To me, it's a stepping stone. And when people get used to that, when people get used to not holding the phone, the policymakers see, look, this can work. The public is, you know, adjusting to this and it's now part of our culture. And at that point, we can then look, okay, how do we make it better? And now better would be, no conversations at all or whatever the case may be. Now that's gonna be hard in the Bluetooth world. I'm, I'm gonna be practical with you, Sarah. <laughs> and then going totally nuts, looking into the future, mm -hmm. maybe it is driverless cars that we're mm -hmm. inevitably moving toward, yeah. which, which will not require alert, alert, grab the wheel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our vehicle fleets last about a generation, about 20 years. So let's think about that for a moment. When is the earliest the United States will have nothing but a driverless environment? We are talking at a minimum. If everything goes well with the technology, and let's say the technology was perfect today, at the earliest we would all be interacting in a driverless system is 20 years from now. Okay, so what you're really saying is we probably have to make our peace yes. with pedestrian deaths yes. and encounters because that is the price 
of our advances in cell phone technology. Well, really, yeah, well, that's where we are. Where we are, but let's, here's where I don't want you or anybody or myself or anybody to feel helpless about this. I don't want to make peace with those deaths. Okay. What I don't want to make peace with is just to say we can't do anything about it until we get driverless cars because waiting for something that is still unlikely in the future is not going to not going to save lives. So where's the practicality? We know mobile phones are here to stay. And, and we know that we have this system that has to adapt to that technology quickly. And we have human behavior that has adapted great to the use of mobile technology, but not so great to how that technology impacts their safety. Hey, I have a small idea. Mm -hmm. What if our iPhones alerted us about safety and crosswalks, right? Well, you know, look, we have the technology now to shut down mobile phones while you're driving. We, we don't use it because it's politically not we don't want to. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so could someone develop an app that would shut your phone down if you are near an intersection? Could that be done? Yeah. Is that likely to be done and accepted? Perhaps by some people, but here's the thing. The people that probably would accept that app are those that are going to be, like you, me, and our listeners, concerned and worried and wanting to take action. <laughs> yeah. Brian Porter is Associate Dean of the Graduate School and Professor of Psychology at Old Dominion University. Kids these days, always on a tablet or some sort of screen. And can they really spell or do they just have a good relationship with Siri? Children today are hooked on screens as early as two years old because we are. Robin Conrad is a professor of psychology at James Madison University. She says these screens are absolutely affecting children's information processing. Robin, my kids grew up for a while when there were no cell phones or computer screens, but then they had them. But a lot of the toddlers and elementary school children today, I guess all of them, have never been without screens. Can you tell the difference? Are they different brains from the generation before them? That's a great question. I think what people call children who are growing up with these devices in their everyday lives, they call them digital natives as opposed to digital immigrants. So these digital natives, these children who are growing up with these devices in their everyday lives, it's a great and important question to ask. Are their brains different? So I think it's probably possible to say that children these days, yes, their brains are going to probably look different. And some of that might be okay, and some of that might be not so good. And we need to be vigilant about how we are engaging our children with these digital media. You've been looking at the effect of screen time on toddlers and the effect of screen time on older elementary school age children. What differences are you noticing? I think the biggest difference, especially for parents and for educators to know, is that children that are younger than three really have significant limitations in what they can learn and take away from digital media. There's so much research now on that that the American Academy of Pediatrics has released some relatively new guidelines on interactions with digital media and what parents can expect and what they might want to avoid. 
for example, toddlers, two and under toddlers, they don't do a very good job of learning information from screens. So, you know, those videos like Baby Einstein and some other types of videos, mm-hmm. they're targeted towards these young children. And they you know, make claims like, well, you know, your children will learn vocabulary. You, you sit them down in front of Bach and Mozart and they'll hear this music and they'll see a ball bouncing on the screen and they'll, they'll hear words that describe the ball. They'll be learning those words. Um, But actually, a lot of research has shown that children at this age have what we call a video deficit effect. And what that fancy term means um, basically is just they aren't actually learning information from that experience. They are very engaged and often parents take their engagement and their enjoyment, their enthusiasm for watching those videos as that they're learning something and as teachers probably can tell you there's a big difference between being engaged and actually having learned something. You did an interesting experiment using video chatting with a toddler that demonstrated they don't really learn screen time as well as they do from face-to-face interactions. Tell me about the experiment you did with a child's father and a stranger to the child. Yes, so I was interested in what children understand from video chat because I had actually was randomly watching an interview with a a military father who had been deployed. And this was actually a while ago when video chatting was just starting to become ubiquitous, easily accessible to people, everyday people with everyday phones. And this family started to use video chat with their very young daughter to keep in touch with the father who was deployed for months at a time. And when the father came back, he claimed, you know, this was such a wonderful experience. I really feel connected to my child. I'm so glad that we were able to do this. And the mother who was with the daughter on the other end, um, in the interview, she said, agreed. And this was a great way to develop the relationship with her father when he could not be physically present. Um, But at the very end of the interview, the mother said, you know, it's so cute. Sometimes the laptop will be sitting on the table and her father will be sitting on the couch in the other room and she'll go over to the laptop and say, where's daddy? Where's daddy? And to me as a developmental psychologist, it is cute, but it also Mm -hmm. raises some red flags, right? About what is this young child, this 18 month old actually thinking? And so some of my research that explored this question actually suggests that this child might be thinking that she has a daddy on the couch and she has a daddy on the computer screen and they may not actually be the same person. Is that necessarily a harm? Yeah, that's a great question. Is this harmful? I don't know that it's harmful, but I think it's important to understand what the limitations might be of this technology. So. Yeah. You know, it's it's wonderful that the father had this experience and that the child had this experience. But we also need to have realistic expectations about what children are gaining from this experience, what they are understanding from that kind of interaction. So if you're a grandparent and you haven't really had much opportunity to engage with your grandchild other than on a video chat, you know, it's it's good for the grandparents to have that interaction and to get to know their young grandchildren but also have realistic expectations. When you do finally get to go visit that grandchild, don't be disappointed. 
if they may not immediately run to you with love in their eyes. It might still take them a while to connect the dots, and they need to be scaffolded with that. What do you find with children who are three and above? Is the experience with digital media any different for them? Yes. By the time children are three, there is a huge cognitive shift in their understanding of symbols. And if you think about it, screens are really symbols for something that is happening somewhere else. And their understanding shifts where they are now able to have this conceptual realization about the meaning of screens, the meaning of interacting with digital ebooks, for example, and also interactive apps, as well as TV shows. So their understanding shifts, and that's a really important reason why they are able to learn better from screen media or interactive apps. Um, in fact, you know, we know from research that looks at children who watch Sesame Street, for example, um, particularly for children who may not have a very rich environment at home, um, maybe they don't have uh, a lot of stimulation at home, children coming from these underprivileged environments actually do benefit in terms of their language and literacy development from watching shows like Sesame Street that are targeted for young children and have particular qualities about them. For example, they're slow, they're repetitive. I'll give you a perfect example of that. Um, <laughs> when, uh, when COVID started mm -hmm. and we were shutting down um, and you're trying to figure out how do you explain this to your young kids who are used to going to preschool and playing with their friends and they're trying to understand what's going on. Well, there's a Daniel Tiger show about what do you do when you're sick and you know what, what are the best things to do if you're sick. And they have a very simple song that goes something like, when you're sick, rest is best. And they, they play this over and over again throughout the show. My four-year-old, when COVID started, she was asking me questions about COVID and talked about how, you know, <laughs> it, it's a virus and it can make people very sick and we're trying not to share our germs and so we're going to stay at home for a little while. And we watched this show on Daniel Tiger, and she's, you know, running around singing, it's COVID time, it's COVID time. Rest is best when you're sick, rest is best. And you're singing this song. So shows like that can really support learning and understanding of difficult concepts. So, yes, those shows, it's, it's not that we need to say screens are terrible and we should never, ever let our children interact with screens. Screens are a part of our daily lives, and I think... It's really important to understand the best way to engage with them. So parents co-viewing with their children, talking about the shows that they're watching, doing things together is always helpful for scaffolding learning. Apps, interactive shows, they're not ever going to take the place of live face-to-face -face interaction, but they can help to support learning for children who are three or older. So in a completely digital age... What do you think screen time has replaced with parents? We assume some parents are more perfect than others, but most of us are pretty imperfect. What do you think children were doing before? Were they allowed to get bored and then create their own imaginary happy places? One of the dangers of too much screen time is, in fact, changes in the brain function where um, attentional 
development is concerned. And yes, one of the reasons why children are so engaged when they watch TV shows or when they're playing with their iPads is because you are basically giving them their entertainment. They don't have to do the hard work of being bored and figuring out what to do with themselves. They don't have to do the hard work of managing their attention. And so when we have too much screen time, we're not giving children and really children's brains the time and the space um, to learn how to do that. And there's some really interesting uh, research going on right now about how how children's brains are changing as screen time goes up. So areas of the brain that are involved in sustained attention, being able to focus on a task, especially tasks that might be hard or they might be tedious or not so so much fun. So you know some tasks in school, for example, um, children who have more screen time are less good at doing those tasks. And in fact, a longitudinal study that's going on has been some preliminary findings anyway, have shown that children who have more screen time before the age of three actually have worse performance in those kinds of tasks when they get into their school-aged years. So this kind of research is still in its infancy, but I think some common sense you know, can be helpful in this area where, you know, we don't want screens to replace rich experiences that children might have playing with their peers, playing with their siblings, interacting with their caregivers. We don't want these activities on screens to replace going outside and manipulating objects and exploring, and yes, even being bored. So it's not probably a great idea if your child says, you know, mommy, I'm so bored, can I go watch TV? Oh, you know, sometimes that's okay, mm -hmm. but we don't want that to be our default. You know, of course, so much of this is about parenting exhaustion. I mean, children love screen time, and it gives parents a chance to recharge or work or veg. I'm just saying it's hard to resist allowing our children or putting them in front of screens when we love it and they love it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And have you faced that yourself? Absolutely. My husband and I, we both have full-time jobs. I have three children, ages seven, almost five, and two and a half. Oh. So, you know, they're not independent. <laughs> they do require a lot of attention. And so, yeah, trying to balance just, you know, the day-to-day -day domestic tasks along with carrying two full-time jobs when your daycares and when your schools are shutting down. And it is okay to use screens if you need to. I think the main takeaway is do your best to have some balance. Do you ever find yourself with your husband having a disagreement over whether now is a good time for screen time or not? Yes. <laughs> my, my husband and I have definitely had those moments where we're, we're desperate to, you know, do something for our job or finish a task at home and we may not have communicated well that you know I let our kids watch tv this morning for an hour and now you're <laughs> letting them you know it's your turn to parent and you're letting them watch tv so yes having communication about when you are using media so in our home we try to put everything away during dinner time you know we we try to have good face-to-face -face interactions where we're not distracted by technology and screens. Um, but yes, I think everybody has had those moments where you have some disagreements over what is okay or what is not okay. 
Robin Conrad, this has been so much fun. Thanks for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. Thanks for inviting me. Robin Conrad is a professor of psychology at James Madison University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back.